Helen Keller was born on June 27, 1880. But at 19 months of age, just a little over a year and a half, she contracted an illness, possibly scarlet fever or meningitis, which left her both deaf and blind. Despite her disabilities, Helen excelled through what others saw as insurmountable obstacles. With the help of her beloved teacher, Annie Sullivan, Keller proved to the world that people who were deaf and blind could learn to communicate and could be major contributors to society. Keller not only learned how to live with her, her disabilities, but she learned how to use her disabilities to learn in unique ways. She was the first deaf-blind person to receive a Bachelor of Arts degree. She went on to become a prolific author and lecturer. She was once asked this question, Helen, is there anything worse than being blind? Is there anything worse than being blind? Helen's response, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Keller was a visionary. She was able to see and to imagine what many others were unable to see and unable to imagine. Her vision kept her pressing forward through the difficulties and triumphing over trials. She had a vision, a set of tracks that she was moving forward on that gave her direction and structure and clarity in life. The Italian Renaissance sculptor, Agostino di Antonio worked diligently on a large piece of marble. Unable to craft his desired masterpiece, he lamented, I can do nothing with this slab of marble. Other sculptors also worked on this difficult piece of marble to no avail. And then Michelangelo discovered the stone. And he saw the possibilities that no one else could see. His vision resulted in one of the world's masterpieces, right? The David. David. How about the prolific inventor Thomas Edison? He actually discouraged his friend Henry Ford from pursuing his fledgling idea of a motor car. Convinced of the worthlessness of the idea, Edison in, uh, invited Ford to come and to work for him. Ford, despite the invitation, remained committed and tirelessly pursued his dream, his vision. Although his first attempt resulted in a vehicle without a reverse gear, Henry Ford knew that he could make it happen, and of course, he did. Ford Motor Company. Many of you sit behind the wheel of one every day. Let's not forget our friends Orville and Wilbur Wright. One day, their father brought home a toy helicopter for the boys made of paper, bamboo, and cork with a rubber band that twirled its rotors. Orville and Wilbur played with it until it broke. Like, much boy, or like many boys do. And then they built their own. And in later years, they pointed to their experience with the toy as the spark of their interest in flying. Later on in life, journalists, friends, armed forces specialists, even their father laughed at the idea of an airplane. What a silly idea and what a silly way to spend money. Leave flying to the birds, they jeered. As a result, a place called Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, became the setting for the launching of their, quote, ridiculous idea. On December 17, 1903, the brothers made the first powered flight in the Wright Flyer 1. Today, we traverse the world in hollow aluminum tubes because of the vision of two young men who did not even receive high school diplomas. 
visionaries. They were able to look down the road and to see it, and so to live for it. To give their time and their energy and their resources and their thought to making it become a reality. That's what vision is. It's seeing down the road into the future, not in a weird, mystical way, but having a dream. I think we would look to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his speech, I had a dream. What a vision. Have you ever listened to that, by the way? What a vision. What a vision he communicated in his speech. He was a visionary. He saw it, and so he lived for it. He oriented his life around his vision bringing all of those visionaries down to a spiritual illustration. Now, how about the missionary Jim Elliott? Jim had a vision to give his life away to an unreached people group deep in the interior of Ecuador and give his life away, he did. Along with Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and their pilot, Nate Saint, they were killed by 10 warriors, 10 Aka Indian warriors on January 8, 1956, at the age of 29, just a young spring chicken. Elliot left behind a young widow, a baby daughter, and volumes of personal journals written over the years. Those journals have been published, and I would highly recommend them to you. If you've not uh, ever read or ever sought out the, the missionary journals of Jim Elliot, go get you a copy. You can find them on Amazon relatively inexpensive. They will, they will encourage you. They will inspire you. Uh, they will help you see that uh, life is worth living for and life is worth dying for, spending and being spent for the sake of the gospel, pouring your life out for the sake of the gospel. Get yourself a copy of Jim Elliott's journals. Listen to some of the things that this young visionary wrote in his journals. He said this, Father, make of me a crisis man Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me to be a fork that men must turn one way or the other because of Christ in me. What a vision. You pray prayers like that? Do you have a vision for your life like that? One of two ways that we can live, brothers and sisters. We can live by default that's just kind of bouncing through the Christian life, or we can live by design. That's what distinguishes each of the individuals that I have shared with you so far, is that they refused to live by default and instead had a vision. They were living on purpose, living by design. You're probably well acquainted with Eliot's wise words, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Boy, what a, what a line in the sand he drew and lived for. Living for things that are eternal, not things that are temporal and transitory and fleeting and dying. Remember I said if it rots, rust, collects dust, or dies, don't give your life to it. Right? Eliot said this, he said, when it comes time to die, Make sure that die is all you have to do. Live now so that you're not trying to tie up all the loose ends. Laying there on your deathbed, recounting all the I wish I would us. Make sure when it comes time to die, that's living purposefully today, living intentionally today, so that when it comes time to die, die is all you have to do. Because you've already been spent for the sake of the gospel. Well, what is vision? 
Write this down if you're taking notes. You can just put this in that first part of your outline there, the importance of vision. Maybe you've already jotted a few thoughts down. What is vision? It's an interesting question. If you ask 10 people, you'd probably get 10 different answers. I would submit to you that if you ask 10 pastors, you'd probably get 10 different answers. But vision, again, is simply imagining the future, not in a weird or a mystical or in a super spiritual way, but imagining the future and intentionally and proactively living in light of that hope and dream. It's seeing the future and living for it today. Orienting my life, my decisions, my thinking process around it. Why is vision important? Why is vision important? I want to lay some groundwork before I even spell out our vision statement. Why why is vision important? Well, vision answers this question. What does God want us to do? What does God want us to do? We need to answer that question with clarity and consistency and creativity. What does God want us to do? What has he communicated in Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 that we are to do, that we are to be about? Vision. That's why I said a minute ago that our our vision statement isn't just some collection of pithy words. A vision statement that is not drawn explicitly from the scriptures is a vision other than Jesus' vision for the local church. And so you'll find here in just a moment that our vision statement comes right out of the Word, which is exactly where it should come, because it answers the question, what does God want us to do? But it stretches us to look down the corridor of the future and to dream big, to think big, to pray big, to ask God of big things, and then to to live in light of it, to orient our lives in light of it today. Now, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're not forcing God to be on our agenda. We're not forcing God to obey our vision. But I think we need to pray big. I think we need to ask God of some some big things, things that are beyond ourselves. To be dreamers in a holy way, in a biblical way. Vision answers the question, what does God want us to do? And again, we need to be able to answer that question with consistency, with clarity, and with creativity. Vision fuels focus and direction. Vision fuels focus, focus, and direction. Vision provides us with a clear picture of what the mission will look like when it's realized within our local body or our local community of believers. If we don't have a goal or a destination in front of us as a church, our default tendency is always to remain the same. If we don't have a goal or a vision in front of us as a local church, the default tendency is to always remain the same. Just to get in a set of ruts and to wear that set of ruts out. Doing the same thing over and over and over again. Recapitulating, rehashing the same programs, the same ministries over and over and over again. Because there's nothing giving us clear direction. There's nothing giving us clear focus for the future. A wise man once told me, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always have what you've already got. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always have what you've already got. The theologian Thomas Jefferson similarly said... If you want something you've never had, you must be willing to do something you've never done. If you want something you've never had, you must be willing to do something that you've never done. 
You see, a clear vision helps us get out of the ruts of complacency and keeps us moving down the road of intentionality. What does God want us, Cape Bible Chapel, our, our local congregation, to do? Why do we exist here at 2911 Coggy Road? What are we doing in the community that we live? What are we doing in our neighborhoods? What kinds of influence do we have among the nations? What are we doing to influence the next generation? Which is a command, by the way, Psalm 145, and one generation will commend you to the next, will tell of your wondrous deeds and your mighty acts. We want to be all about that. Three ends, or in three here, neighborhoods, nations, next generation. What does God want us to do? I think we would find that clearly in Scripture. But vision is useless if it remains only on paper. Church letterhead, church websites, church mailers, church t-shirts, church bumper stickers, and the like are where vision statements go to die a thousand deaths if that is where they stay. Think about that for a minute. You can put your church vision on the bottom of your letterhead. It can be under your signature line on every email that you blast out. You can print it on t-shirts. You can put it on billboards. You can blast it out in mailers to the community. But if that is where our vision stays, it's useless. Our vision must be embodied by individuals. It must be embraced by the body of Christ. If a vision is only top-down, if it's just forced from, from leadership down in a local church, but the body, the collective body, does not embrace it, it's like a locomotive with no wheels. It's big and it's heavy and it just sits on the track. And we can all look at it all day long, but it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. And so as we continue to talk over the next three weeks, I want to encourage you to pray through our vision statement, to pray, asking God, how, how can I be a part of this in creative ways? How has God gifted me? What gifts has God given me so that I might employ them in the church's vision? Ultimately, in Jesus' vision, because we want our vision to be congruent with Jesus' vision for the church. Many churches have pithy vision statements, but they've never connected the hands and the feet of the congregation to the vision, so it goes nowhere. We don't want to do that. We don't want to print banners and, and put it on things, but not connect the hands and the feet, the unique God-given giftedness of the body of Christ to the vision. A nowhere plan always leads to a nowhere destination. It's been said that Vision without execution is just hallucination. Vision without execution is just hallucination. You see, a church without a clear, compelling, and embraced vision will soon see that it does most of what it does for itself. Let me rewind that statement. It's really important. A church without a clear, direct, compelling vision statement will soon find that it does much of what it does for itself. Because the natural tendency or the draw of every local church is to circle the wagons. The draw or the tendency of every local church is, is to become insular, is to do what we do for us. Instead of remembering that right outside those glass doors, there's a lost and dying community that needs to hear the gospel. 
And we, we need not forget that there's a world that exists beyond the four borders of our state. There's a nation that is spiraling downward in sin. Look at Romans 1, if you need a picture, of the decay of sin in the world in which we live, that downward spiral. You know, if you've ever given the kiddos a, a bath or washing dishes and you fill the bathtub up or you fill the sink up with water and then you pull the plug, it just... It's Romans 1. Just the moral morass of the world. What are we doing as a local church? We can't do everything. We're limited in number. We're limited in resources. We're limited in finances. But we're not limited in our God. What are we trusting God for? Are we praying bottom level, bottom shelf prayers? And we should be praying top shelf prayers. Prayers such that unless God shows up and moves and works, we can do it on our own. A church without a clear, compelling, embraced vision soon sees that it does most of what it does for itself. In other words, again, the natural pull of every local church is just to circle the wagons, to become insular, to exist for itself. But Jesus hasn't called us to circle the wagons. Jesus has called us to be a beacon, a radiating light to the world in which we live, to radiate God's glory near and far. A congregation can be a major agent of change, both in its community and around the world, if it has a clear picture of the future worthy of the sacrifice of its members. Let me rewind that. That's an important statement there. A congregation, we, the chapel, can be a major agent of change, both in our community and in the world, if we have a clear picture of the future that is worthy of our sacrifice. What does vision do? I think vision does a lot of things. Vision encourages unity. It gives us something to rally around as a body, something collective, where we're all about the same thing. We're not cookie cutters. We're not all the same thing. That is uniquely gifted us, and we all play a different role and have a different part in it, but it gives us unity that we would all know. What does God want us to do? Because I wonder, I wonder if before the service we had just caught individuals in the, in the lobby and asked that question without any prompting. What is it that God wants us as a local church to do? Would we get a, an answer that is in unison and harmony or would we get an answer that is a bit disjunct? We want to be unified. A vision encourages unity. A vision, incre- or, or, I'm sorry, a vision creates energy, excitement. This is what we're doing, and we're doing it together, and we're rallying the troops. It's exciting. It's engaging. Vision focuses attention and direction. It enhances leadership, right, because we know where we're going. We can lead well because we know where we're going. Vision promotes excellence. And so you ask yourself this question. It was a question I was asking myself this week in my study. Is it biblical to have a vision? Biblical to have a vision. I think it is. Let me give you one example from the Old Testament and one example from the New Testament, though there are many, many examples. Turn in your Bible for just a second to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 
In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we find that God caught Abraham's attention with a vision for him. God caught Abraham's attention with a vision for him. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What a vision. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a vision God has given Abram here. Now, turn just a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. You see what God did right there? God told Abraham what the end of the story was. You see it? Now Abraham has a vision. God told him what the end of the story is. And so now Abram has something to orient his life around, a set of tracks to roll on. You shall have a son, and your very son shall be your heir. And then God brought him outside and said to him, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, God, counted to him it as righteousness. You see, here's the unique thing, friends. God gave Abram a vision here. He told him the end of the story. And then walked him outside on a starry night and said, Abram, look up. Your descendants, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then on another account, as numerous as the grains of of sand on the seashore. But do you know that Abraham never lived to see the fruition of that promise? But he lived for it. He believed it. He lived in light of it. Even though he never lived to see its completion. Let me give you one New Testament example. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. This comes from the Lord Jesus himself. Verses 1 and 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, or fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder or the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, look at this language. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, I would submit to you that it's very possible that the joy that Jesus looked forward to while enduring the cross was the vision of his return and presence with his Father in heaven. 
and along with that, gathering the reward of the cross, the redeemed from every tribe, nation, tongue. MacArthur notes this, Jesus didn't run his race of faith for the pleasure of the race itself, though he must have experienced great satisfaction in seeing people healed and comforted and brought to faith, started on the way to spiritual growth. But he, Jesus, did not leave his Father's presence and his heavenly glory, endure temptation and fierce opposition by Satan himself, suffer ridicule, scorn, blasphemy, torture, and crucifixion by his enemies, and experience the misunderstanding and denial of his own disciples for the sake of whatever few pleasures and satisfactions he had while on earth. He was motivated by immeasurably more than this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because he, the sovereign one, knew the end. For Jesus prayed in the garden just hours before his death. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now glorify me in your own presence, God, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I think there are numerous. We could talk for hours about examples in the Bible of vision. There's just one, I think, from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. We see that having a vision, I think, is clearly biblical. So, in light of all that, laying some groundwork and saying our vision, our vision, our vision, our vision, what I've wanted to do for the last 15 minutes is is to create in you that desire to just say, what is it? Tell us already, what is it? As we have prayed and considered, what would the Lord have us to do over the last couple of years? And you've probably heard us mention from the pulpit in our prayer times and announcements. You've probably seen it on year-end giving receipts uh, and things that we're praising the Lord for. Uh, You you have uh, probably heard it in in numerous places, if you think about it, neighborhoods, nations, next generation. Let me give you the full statement. It is there on your outline. Cape Bible Chapel, that is us. This local congregation exists to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ in our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. That's why we exist. Now, let me go back and say, this vision statement will die a thousand deaths if it's written in my notes, if it is just on the recording, if it's on these banners, if it's on our letterhead, if we paint it on the walls, if we blast it out in in media mailers, it will die a thousand deaths if it stays there. For a vision to be effective, it must be embraced and embodied by a local congregation. And so this, again, is where I would come to you and ask you to prayerfully consider how you might be able to use your unique giftedness. God has made you unique. He's wired you up unique so that you can play a part in the local church, but also use your giftedness through the local church as the gospel goes forth to the world. I would ask you to be praying, God, how can you use me to be a part of this 
vision, to, to, to be on this set of tracks, which we as a local church want to navigate on. Cape Bible Chapel exists to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ in our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. I want you to see, look there at that, at that vision statement. Two things are evident there. Number one, our identity. Our identity, which is to know Christ. That comes in just this phrase right here. Cape Bible Chapel exists to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers. That's who we are. That's who we are. We are a gospel-centered community of worshipers. That is our identity. Now, what is our purpose? What would God have us to do? Well, that answers the question to make Christ known. We are on mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ in our neighborhoods among the nations and of the next generation. Our identity to know Christ and our purpose to make Christ known. And those three ends there, neighborhoods, nations, next generation, that's just another way of saying Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. That's here. That's our local community. It's the place in which we live, the place in which we work, the people whom you rub shoulders with day in and day out, the person who checks you out at the grocery store, the person who you pay for your gasoline, and everyone in between. It's our neighborhood. It's the community in which we live. And we want to do a good job as a local church of impacting the community in which we live with the gospel. Again, the tendency of every local church is to circle the wagons. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. We'll live for us. We'll exist for us. We'll become insular. We'll have a great time in here. We'll worship in here. And forget that there's a lost and dying world just outside those glass double doors. The nations. We heard last week, and it's very intentional that we're placing these three weeks of vision right on the back end of Missions Emphasis Sunday. We, we heard last week that the nations are on the heart of God. God is a missionary. Matter of fact, God is the first missionary. You know where the first gospel's preached? Genesis 3.15. It's the first time the gospel's preached in the Bible. And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, all pointing down the road thousands of years to the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is the first missionary. Adam, Adam, where are you? I was hiding. Why were you hiding, Adam? Because I'm guilty and I have shame over my sin. So what does God do? He says, guys, gals, take the fig leaves off. There has to be a sacrificial substitute for your sin. And so, at, so God clothes Adam and Eve with the skin of deceased animals, a picture reflecting down the road to the sacrificial lamb who would hang on Calvary's cross. God preached the first gospel. He's a missionary God. The nations are on his heart. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations worship. Let the nations utter my praises. Over and over and over we see this language, this language throughout the Psalms. If you look at our vision statement there, and then I'll give you these three we believe statements. I'm going to give you three today. I'm going to give you three next Sunday. I'm going to give you three the concluding Sunday. A total of nine we believe statements that I think undergird our vision statement. Look there at our vision statement. Our vision encompasses worship, Right? 
Hey, Bible Chapel exists to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers. Our vision encompasses worship. Our vision encompasses reaching the lost with the gospel. Right? To make and multiply disciples of Christ. Our vision encompasses discipling, discipling and equipping believers in the gospel. And then lastly, reproducing reproducers throughout the world. If you look at our vision statement, you'll see those components. Worship, reaching the lost with the gospel, discipling and equipping believers in the gospel, and then reproducing reproducers that will be able to go into the world and preach the gospel. You know, in just a handful of weeks, we're going to send off some missionaries. The first of a couple sets of missionaries, Tim and Brenda Pierce, are getting ready to head overseas, buying a one-way ticket. We can view that one of two ways. We can view that as we're just sending missionaries, or we can view that as the chapel is planting a church across the ocean. I would encourage you to view that as the latter, because that, that raises the issue of personal responsibility. How are you going to be involved? We are planting a church in another nation. And it's not going to be too long before we send the Schraders Papua New Guinea, with the ultimate hope and the vision, the dream, looking down the future of sharing the gospel with an unreached language group. There's a reason we say language group instead of people group, right? There's a reason that we say unreached language group. We typically think of people groups as those that, that reside in a, in a particular geopolitical region, right? Africa. Asia, Russia, UK, right? We typically think of people groups as residing in a geopolitical area, something defined by borders. But what we forget is that Jesus in his day did not have those defined borders that our globe has today. And so in every geopolitical area, there are numerous, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of unique, very different language groups. That changes the ballgame as we think about reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few we believe statements here as we conclude this morning. They come directly from our vision statement. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. We, that is Cape Bible Chapel, believes that the gospel or the cross should be at the center of everything that we do, okay? Cape Bible Chapel exists to be a gospel-centered. Let's just stop right there. We believe that the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, is to be at the center of everything that we do. But before we say anything about what it means to be gospel-centered, we need to be clear about what the gospel message is itself. What is the gospel message well, in its simplest terms, the gospel is the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that accomplishes the restoration and the redemption for all those who believe. You see, in his earthly life, Jesus fulfilled the law and accomplished all righteousness on behalf of sinners who had broken God's law at every single point. And so in his death, Jesus the perfectly righteous sacrificial substitute atones for or pays for our sin debt. He satisfies the wrath of God and obtains forgiveness for all who believe. 
That's what Jesus does in his death. Now, in his resurrection, Jesus' victory over sin and death is the guarantee of our victory over the same in and through him. You see, Jesus' saving work not only redeems sinners, uniting them to God, but it also assures us of the future restoration of all creation. You see, this is the gospel. This is the good news, the euangelion, the good news that God redeems a fallen world by his grace. So before we say anything about what it means to be gospel-centered, we've got to be clear on what is the gospel. That's the message that we rally around as believers, right? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now in light of that gospel, what it means to be gospel-centered is that the gospel is our greatest hope. It is our greatest boast. That's Galatians 6.14, right? Let me boast in nothing except in Christ alone. The gospel is our deepest longing and our joy. It's our central message. It means that the gospel is what defines us as Christians. Not what neighborhood we live in, not who we work for, not what our bank account is. Nothing else defines us as Christians other than the gospel. It's what unites us as brothers and sisters. It's what transforms us as believers. It's what sends us out on mission as God's people. We don't ever graduate to something beyond the gospel. There's nothing greater than the gospel. There's nothing fuller than the gospel. There's nothing deeper than the gospel. There's nothing more spiritual than the gospel. And there is nothing more advanced than the gospel. We don't graduate from it when we become Christians. We simply grow in it. Having said that, there's the universal danger of forgetting what is most important. That danger faces us as a local church of forgetting what is of most importance. In other words, it's very possible to be gospel-centered on paper, but not to be gospel-centered in practice. We can be busy doing many things, wonderful things, but if we miss the gospel, we miss everything. If the gospel is not infused in everything that we do, we've missed it. We've missed it. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, why do we need to be reminded Because we're forgetful. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and in which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then Paul says this, for I delivered to you what was of first importance. The gospel. The gospel is of first importance. Now, before we can talk about how to live the gospel-centered life, We have to identify what our life is centered upon right now. What is your life centered upon right now? We're all living lives that are centered on something, but is it the right thing? Here's some questions to ask yourself. What's the main thing in your life? What are you most passionate about? What consumes your thoughts? What dominates your vocabulary? What governs your actions? And what is your basis for decision-making? Is it the gospel? Because that's what it means to live a gospel-centered life. Is it the gospel would be at the center of all of those things, my thoughts, my vocabulary, my actions, my decision-making. The things that I'm passionate about all flow from the gospel. I think if we had to distill, and there's Tom, I mean, this is a, there's a whole sermon series here. Let me just, if we had to distill what it means to be a gospel-centered church down to its essence, I would say this. 
might want to jot these down. They're not on your outline. To be a gospel-centered church means that we do everything in reliance upon the gospel. To be a gospel-centered church means that we do everything that we do in reliance upon the gospel. It is our central message. You can just write a comma there so you don't have to repeat yourself. To be a gospel-centered church means that we do everything we do out of an overflow of the gospel. Not only a reliance on the gospel, but out of an overflow of the gospel. And then lastly, to be a gospel-centered church means that we do everything with the hope of displaying the gospel to a lost and dying world. How are we doing at being light, Matthew chapter 5? How are we doing at being salty in the decaying world in which we live, Matthew chapter 5? Reliance upon the gospel, and everything is done out of an overflow of the gospel, and everything is done in the hope of displaying the gospel. Those are a few of the things that it means to be gospel-centered. And we as a church believe that the gospel or the cross should be at the center of everything that we do. Number two, we believe that God has designed us to live and minister within a community, write that down, a community of like-minded believers. Look back at the vision statement again. Cape Bible Chapel exists to be a gospel-centered what? A gospel-centered community. God has designed us to live and minister within a community of like-minded believers. Right? You see, the world celebrates independence, but the Bible celebrates interdependence. When the gospel is central in our lives and we long for and discover unity that we have with other believers in the local church, it, it fleshes itself out in our mission. We're like-minded, meaning we rally around, we embrace the same central message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we realize that God has not designed us to live autonomous. God has not designed us to live independently, but God has designed us to live interdependently. Lone rangers get shot, right? I'm not condoning the movie in any way, shape, or form. But if you've ever seen the movie Top Gun, you might remember the thing that Maverick is always getting in trouble for. He's always getting in trouble because he's always flying off and performing some kind of stunt and leaving his wingman vulnerable. God hasn't designed us to live that way. God has designed us to fly in formation with a like-minded community of believers, and when we leave each other, when we go off trying to do our own thing, not only are we vulnerable, but we leave our wingman vulnerable as well. You see, we want to be, as a church, a critical mass. If you think about a, a snowball, uh, you know, as it starts to, in, in those children's cartoons, it starts to roll down the, the mountainside and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's the idea that I have in my mind when I think about critical mass. We want to we be that as a, a local church for the gospel's sake all aimed in the same direction, picking up steam, moving forward, using our unique giftedness to accomplish a singular goal that is the exaltation of Christ, worship, and the proclamation of Christ, mission. Lastly, let's land the plane. We believe that exuberant worship, right, worship down there, is the goal of our lives and the fuel for all our ministry. You see, our vision is not just a call to ministry, and mission. It is primarily a call to worship. Cape Bible Chapel exists to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers. Worship before mission, because worship fuels mission. Another way of stating that is love for Christ will always extend itself to others 
Gratitude for God's loving pursuit of you will always lead you to pursue others with the gospel that they might too see and they might too taste the grace and the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, if you don't have a copy of John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, get a copy of this book. It's excellent. This is what Piper says right on the opening page. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions is not the ultimate goal of, of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal in missions. What does worship mean? I mean, it's just a compound word. Worth-ship. To ascribe worship, to ascribe honor, to ascribe glory, to ascribe value. To ascribe honor, to ascribe power, to ascribe dominion, to ascribe authority. That's what worship means. Psalm 29, that we would ascribe to the Lord the great glory due his name. Worship is the occupation of heaven, by the way. I would encourage you to get real used to doing it now. Because if you're a believer, you'll do it for days unend, unending in glory. But worship, worship has to overflow in mission. Let me give you one verse here. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. Your version may say, for the love of Christ compels us. Think about what it means to be compelled. I can do no other. I have to do this. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we've concluded this. That one, that is Jesus, has died for all, therefore all have died, and he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. Worship. Worship must fuel mission. Cape Bible Chapel exists to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers. That's our identity. What's our mission? We're on mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ. Where? In our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. We believe the cross should be at the center of everything we do. We believe that God has designed us to live and minister within a community of like-minded believers. And we believe that exuberant worship is to be the goal of our lives and the fuel for all ministry. We'll pick back up there next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, God, we thank you for the fact that you have clearly spelled out in your word what the mission of the church is. And we dare not, we dare not change that. To do anything else, to be about any other mission or vision is to be about a vision or a mission other than that which Jesus had for his church. God help us in the days ahead as we seek to prayerfully massage this vision into the the interworkings of the chapel, as we seek to sew it into the fabric, as it, as it becomes a part of the DNA of each individual member, as we, as we collectively assemble on the same tracks so that we can move forward with commonality of vision and like-mindedness, would you be gracious to us? It won't be easy, Lord. We want to glorify you and honor you in all that we do. Our vision, ultimately, is that we want to be worshipers. And we realize that in this world, 
there are non-worshippers. And your love for us compels us out of an overflow of worship to go and reach them. Help us to do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.